church, you can have a seat. Oh, amen, and it is sure good to be with you today, whether you're joining online or in person, even if you're normally in our kids' ministry right now, I'm glad that you're here with us. Um, we have been in a series called The Gospel in Twelve Stories, and what we're talking about is this, is towards the end, when Jesus knew the cross was imminent, he didn't panic, uh, he just trusted God, and he began telling his followers stories. That was something he frequently did, but he stepped it up towards the end, and those stories were such that they kind of sat in the hearts and in the minds of the people who followed him uh, for years to come, and they shaped them, and they formed them, and they're going to do the same sort of thing for us. So we're looking at these parables in uh, these stories that he told as we lead up to Good Friday and Easter. Last week, Roland tackled three stories about lost things. I am not nearly so ambitious, so we're just going to do one today. Luke chapter 16, find your way there. Here's something I think about frequently. Jesus is wonderful, and he makes me deeply uncomfortable. Have you ever felt this? Jesus is wonderful, like he accepts us just as we are all the time. He accepts us, and that's wonderful. But also, anyone who starts his ministry on earth with the phrase, repent, the kingdom of heaven is, has come near, that guy's going to mess with your life if you let him, Right? And so Jesus is this combination of things. On some level, he is simultaneously deeply comforting and deeply disruptive, both at the same time, all the time. My friend Roland, uh, pastor here on staff, he preached last week. He wrote a tremendous book on the future of the church with a bunch of other authors called Red Skies. In it, he writes this. Just when we think we have God figured out, Jesus will show us something we didn't readily see, the flip side of the story, the truth we least expected, the disruption to our preconceptions. Following Jesus will at points go against every desire in our bones because our humanness will always yearn for simple formulas and defined structures where every question has an answer. But when we study the scriptures, it becomes clear that Jesus is not necessarily prone to providing answers. Well, that is uncomfortable, right? I want him to provide answers. But I've experienced this as I've journeyed with Jesus. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he disrupts us. Today's story is going to be a perfect example of what Roland is talking about, um, because Jesus is going to disrupt us. He's going to tell us a story about a rascal, you know, like a bad guy, like uh, a guy who ultimately does something incredibly unethical and definitely wrong, and here's the twist. Jesus is going to use this rascal as the example that we should follow. And it's problematic. It's confusing. Uh, what's tricky is on the surface, it appears that Jesus is telling us we should do something wrong. I promise you that's not what he's telling us. But that's what it looks like. It looks like that's the point of the parable. And it's very disrupting and challenging to wrap our heads around what Jesus is actually saying. So let me read it. I'll make us all uncomfortable. And then I want to tell you a truth that kind of unlocked it for me. I hope it'll do the same for you. Then we'll go back, try to apply what it means for us. Um, so the scene is this. Roland set it up last week. 
Jesus told those three stories about lost things, and then he's going to tell this story because sinners and tax collectors were flocking to Jesus, and he was spending a lot of time with them. And the religious people of the day, the Pharisees, were bothered by that. See, they had this perspective that the more spiritual you became, then there were certain people that you didn't spend any time with. And so Jesus is pushing back on that with those three stories about lost things and then with this story. He's making them uncomfortable on purpose, okay? So this is the story, story number seven, Luke 16. I'm just going to read it without comment, and then we will go back and talk about it. Luke writes this, Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him and asked him, what's this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill, make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one, love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Pray with me. God, we want to understand the truth contained in this story and all of its wildness, and it's a wild one. Um, So we receive it. We receive it as a gift. Lord, we ask that as it sits in our heads, that it would form us in some way, that it would shape who we are becoming, and that we would resemble you more. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the goal of the parables is uh, that what we're doing during Lent is we're all chewing on them, right? So the goal, as we understand, is not just that Jonathan thinks about them. Now, I'm going to share my thoughts today, but the goal is for you to chew on this story. So what do you think? That's going to be the question that you've got to answer. Like, do you see, like, could we just acknowledge, do we see how problematic this story may be? Like, just on the surface? On the surface, Jesus is making a hero out of a guy uh, who steals money from his boss so that he can have a job after he gets fired for stealing money from his boss. 
That's the hero of the story. I, like, how should we apply this? I guess step one is get a rich boss. Uh, let's pray. We can go. No, that's, there has to be more to the story than that, right? There is. Okay, let me teach you a word. Uh, here's the word I want to teach you today. The word is hermeneutics. Uh, it is a very important sounding word, but it's a very simple concept. Say it with me, hermeneutics. Okay, we should all know this word. This is a fancy word that just means rules for interpreting the Bible. Okay, so everyone uses hermeneutics. It's not just like theologians who use hermeneutics. We all do this all the time. We just don't call it that. When we read the Bible and we answer the question, well, what does this mean after all? That is hermeneutics. There's a few different approaches to hermeneutics. There's a few different rules of hermeneutics about how we should study the Bible. And as you would expect... Uh, if you know humans, there's some arguments over hermeneutics. One of them is this. There's an approach to hermeneutics that says we should all just take the plain meaning of Scripture. And this approach says that generally when you read the Bible, it means what it says and it says what it means. And that sounds really smart. And theologians who think this way start to get very uncomfortable and very nervous and very frustrated when people come along and they start using things like history or culture or the analysis of the original languages or other scriptures to take a verse and suggest that a verse may not exactly mean what it appears to mean. And when someone does that and they say, well, in light of culture, it might mean something different than what it maybe appears to mean, they get really uncomfortable, people who embrace that school of hermeneutics. And they say, well, you're explaining away scripture. It just means it means what it says. And so there's this debate amongst theologians in our country between people who says, listen, you have to read the Bible in context, and that is going to shape the meaning that we take from it. And there are others who say, no, 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 we just need to take it at face value. I feel like this story settles the debate. At least it does for me. Like, here's the question at the core of the debate. Does Scripture ever sometimes appear to say one thing, but in context actually mean something else? Of course it does. Like, not all the time, but frequently it does, right? Like, Jesus is not telling us to be unethical thieves here. I promise you, that's not what he's saying. That is not, he's not saying go sin. I promise you that's not what he's saying, even though that appears to be what it's saying. And so I think part of the lesson we have to observe about a parable like this is just, uh, it has to do with interpreting scripture well. When we are reading a 2,000-year-old document written in two dead languages, context matters, it matters very much. We can't just always read it in English and say, oh, it seems to me that God's word is clearly saying X. That's how we get in trouble. And so we're not explaining away scripture when we look at context. We're actually honoring scripture when we're humble enough to study beyond the plain meaning of the English text. Does that make sense? That's what we need to do here. Now, how do we do that? Well, we should start, this would be a hermeneutical rule. We should start with the rule that Jesus never encourages us to sin. So when it appears like that's what he's doing, then probably we're misunderstanding something about his intent, okay? How do we understand this? Let me say something that might unlock it for us, or this unlocked it for me. Um, let me hit you with a couple truths that I think are, are, are seen in this story. Here's the first one. Jesus is teaching out of this truth, this assumption. Money is not a blessing, it is a tool. 
That's how Jesus approaches this. So wealth, finances, affluence, all of that stuff, it exists for a reason, like to accomplish something else. Money is not an end in and of itself, and that's what he's pushing back on. Nor is it a measure of value or significance or success in life. The only thing, I think according to Jesus, that matters with money is what you do with it. That's what matters most because he's seeing it as a tool. So the shrewd manager is an example of someone who used his money to open up doors for himself. Jesus is not encouraging us to act like the manager. He's encouraging us to approach our money in the same way that the manager does. Does that make sense? So we approach our money, this thing that we have, as if it is a tool that has been given to us for a greater purpose. And so Jesus, really what he's doing is he's encouraging us to adopt his utilitarian approach to money. It's just a thing. That's all it is. It's just a tool. It's, It's not something to worship. It's just something that exists to help you accomplish something else. It helps you accomplish a purpose. Now the purpose Jesus points us to is really relevant. He does not point us to the same purpose that the shrewd manager had, which was to get another job, right? He points us to this purpose that we should use our money to, he says, make friends. Make friends and invest in people because he kind of talks about eternity. He says, because people last eternally. That's what the tool of money is for. And then he says this thing about how it's impossible to just really like God and really like money at the same time. That both of those things, he says, kind of demand a reorienting of priorities. And so eventually you're going to have to choose between them if you know the power of those two things, God and money, right? So it's either God or money. So either you will love and serve God and your money will be a tool that exists for that purpose or you will love and serve money and you will use your God for that purpose. For example, if money is the thing you love, then you will find yourself frequently praying to Jesus, asking him to give you more of it. See how in that sense you're using God to get the thing that you actually worship. But if God is the thing you love, then you will find that you are consistently manipulating your finances to invest more in his kingdom that we trust lasts long after we die. And in that sense, you'll be using your money to worship the thing that you love, which is Jesus. So you see how maybe Jesus is not exactly telling us to rob our boss. Like, do you see that? Okay, have I disavowed you of that idea? Please do not go and rob your boss this week and say, Jesus told me to do that. Or if you do say that, don't say Jonathan told you to do that. Because I'm saying don't do that. Don't rob your boss, okay? What he's saying is people like this guy, the shrewd manager, they think about their money and resources in this very utilitarian way. They use it to get something they care about. And he's pointing out that my people don't always think about it that way. Sometimes they think about it differently, and the proof of that is these Pharisees. Because what are they doing at the end? These Pharisees who love money, they're like, like they think about money as the goal, as the end in itself. And so when Jesus talks like this, they start making fun of him. And Jesus basically says, listen, make fun of me all you want. God knows what you actually care about. And the stuff that you care about, he doesn't care for at all. So go ahead, make fun of me. 
There he goes again, right? Making everyone uncomfortable. He's just disruptive sometimes, you know? Like he just stirs the pot. Not, not just to stir the pot, but to, to move us forward. And that's what he's doing with this. Using this rascal of a manager to teach us something important about God's kingdom. It is uncomfortable if we read this and think Jesus just told us to go steal. It's maybe more uncomfortable when we understand what he actually says. Let me give you a couple of implications. Um, These stand out to me. I'm sure you can come up with your own. I want you to come up with your own. Uh, These are uncomfortable implications that I think we've got to wrestle with. Here's the first one. Let me say it, then I'll explain it. It is not our social media feed that reveals what we care about. It's actually our online banking transaction record. That's what reveals where our heart is. Do you see how Jesus is maybe pointing that out? To these people who love money, he's like, God knows. God knows your heart. And how does God know your heart? Because he sees how you spend your money. It's an uncomfortable truth. The manager used his money to get what he cares about. And Jesus is telling these religious people who had a lot of money that your money is revealing what you love. I see what you love because of how you use your money. And what you love is actually detestable to God. And so the lesson is this, money reveals what we value. And the problem for all of us is we have lived most of our lives in a culture where the perception is that it is actually our voice that reveals what we value, not our money, right? So culturally, we think that what, if you want to know what a person values, listen to them right? Listen to what they talk about, what they post on social media, what they say to their friends. That's how you'll know what they actually value. And I don't think Jesus agrees with that. I think Jesus says, I don't, I don't think that's true. People say a lot of stuff. I'm looking at your bank statement if I really want to know where your heart is. I mean, can you imagine like if we took this to heart? I've often thought this would be, if you want to fix social media, here's my plan. Every time someone posts some strongly worded opinion about issue X, a little number appears right beside the post. And the number is the amount of dollars they've donated to the cause. Right? Wouldn't that fix it? It would automatically tell you who to listen to and who's just spouting off about some opinion that they had. Because somehow I think Jesus is right, and this is what he's getting at. People say all sorts of things. How you use your money tells the truth about your heart. So that's what God looks at. It's not what you say you value, it's what you invest in. Okay, I'm going to pause this sermon right here for just a second. Can we pause? Everyone press pause, take a breath. We've covered a lot of ground. That's probably pretty good. We could go home, but let me, die. Let me pause. If you've been in church for any length of time, I bet right now um, you're starting to brace yourself. Or at the very least, you're like, I know where this is going, right? Because, I, I, listen, I've, been, I've gone to church my whole life. I've seen it too. It, this is what pastors do. It's, it's a very simple thing because what I'm about to do, or if, if I wanted to, what I would do is I'd take you to the verses about tithing and giving your first fruits to God, and then I'd tell you something like the church is the hope of the world, which is a statement that sounds very true. It's actually theologically inaccurate, but it's a statement that sounds true to say the church is the hope of the world. And then I would say, you know, if you really cared about God and the kingdom of God, then you would give to Pulpit Rock Church. And seen, and that would be it. And then I would pray. I'd tell a moving story, I'd pray, and we'd, we'd go home. Um, so, as I said, we paused the sermon just a second ago. Um, everyone take a deep breath, because I'm not going to do that, okay? 
just, can we all just take a sigh of relief? I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm not going to do that for a few reasons, because I, I, I don't have the heart for it. And I also just fundamentally, I don't believe that. I don't believe that is what Jesus is getting at here, is that, hey, uh, you should give to the church. That's not the point of the story. And by the way, that is not the point of all those verses about tithing and first fruits and all that sort of stuff, is that you should give to your local church. That's not the point of the parable. These verses are not about giving to church. They're about leveraging all the resources that you have for what matters most. That's what Jesus is talking about. And it's not just the local church. Like the actual point of all the stuff is this. Nothing matters as much as the gospel and the kingdom of God. Okay? Period. So Jesus says, if you care about what matters most, invest there. The gospel and the kingdom of God. Jesus, you will note, is ridiculously confident about that fact. That nothing matters as much as the gospel and the kingdom of God. So much so is that people would come to him and say, Jesus, you're so great. I would love to follow you. And Jesus would be like, awesome, that's wonderful. Thank you for saying that. Um, Step one, sell everything you have, give it to the poor. Step two, then come on, let's go. And they would be like, well, I'm not going to do that. And they would be confused and they would be disappointed and they would walk away. And Jesus would be like, okay. And he would keep walking because he was that confident that the kingdom of God was the only thing that mattered. That it mattered more than anything else in all of life. And what he was constantly trying to convince us of is to put God's kingdom first. And also, I would say, according to Jesus, he would say also maybe second and third and fourth and fifth. And then maybe if you have time left over in your day, there's a room for a sixth priority that's something else, right? That's how confident he was in the kingdom of God. He, he said nothing would matter as much as God's kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven. And he would regularly point out, your job doesn't matter as much as that. He would regularly point out, your religious institutions, like the local church, do not matter as much as the kingdom of God. He would regularly point out, not even the nation matters as much as God, not this nation, not even his nation, the nation of Israel, which people really struggled with that. What's hardest for us is he pointed out on a few occasions, even your family doesn't matter as much as the kingdom of God. And if that doesn't make you uncomfortable, then you're not really paying attention to what he's saying. Nothing mattered to him as much as the kingdom of God. His point was there's nothing more valuable than the kingdom of God. Now, what is that? The kingdom of God. It is simply the redemption of every broken thing in all creation under the reign of Jesus. It is that big. And Jesus cared about nothing more than that. It involves every part of us. It involves every part of the world that's broken. Jesus was obsessed with it. And I think, just if I could do some commentary on my fellow pastors, it is really dangerous and manipulative to take the singular obsession of Jesus and confine it inside the walls of brick-and-mortar churches. It's not one-to-one. Like, we cannot equate those two all the time. The kingdom of God cannot be confined in any way. The kingdom of God is much bigger than any individual church. It's even much bigger than all churches combined because it's coming to earth to touch every single thing. And it is reductionist and minimizing to teach that what Jesus says about our finances is we should give to church. That reduces it. Now, church can 
and should reflect the kingdom of God. And to the degree that churches do, for that reason, and that reason alone, they're worthy of our financial investment. But it would be wrong for me to teach that the way that you value the kingdom of God and honor God with your finances is giving to your local church. That's not actually the case. That sort of teaching, I think, is a convenient manipulation of Scripture. Now, I'll tell you this, um, I give to this church, my wife and I give what is a lot of money for us to this church, and the reason we do that, and what I hope is the reason that anyone would give here at Pulpit Rock, is because this church reflects the kingdom of God in some beautiful ways that I see Jesus is in and that are worthy of my investment, Um, and that's why I give here. Uh, If you give here, I want you to understand this. We operate solely off of donations here at at our church. But here's the thing about donations. We do not believe that the donations exist to build this church. That's not why they exist. That's unbiblical. That's not the call of Scripture. That's not what we're trying to do. Our goal is to leverage our combined resources for the biggest kingdom impact possible. That's what this parable is about. And by definition, what this parable teaches us is that that means we are going to invest in some things that we will not see direct benefit from on this earth. That's why Jesus brings up eternity here. That's what we're really trying to do. And I'll tell you this too. um, That's not just like some clever leadership strategy that Jonathan came up with. Um, Honestly, for me, this is a reaction and this is a correction. I don't know if you've experienced this, but I have attended churches that spent over 95% of their budget on themselves, and I did not care for it. To me, it seemed shallow and short-sighted. I I don't know if I could ever be a part of a church that does that again. I think Jesus has forever wrecked me on that because he's so expanded his definition of God's kingdom so far beyond just the walls of this church. Like, we, we just cannot live that way anymore, or I can't. What he's really saying is so much bigger than the church that we attend. He's saying, find places where eternal souls that will last like for all eternity, that's a really long time, are in need. And pour your finances in there. And yeah, you might have to do without like in the short run, but eternity is a really long time. So invest there. Because that's the only thing that matters. Here's the catch. And this is really important. I think we get this wrong about Jesus all the time. Uh, Let me just clarify. Jesus never said, this is not what he said. I gave my life for you so you should give your money to me. That's not Jesus, right? Like he doesn't talk that way. That's an idea rooted in shame and guilt. Uh, That's just not how he talks. What he's saying here is, is as simple as this. He is saying, get caught up in what matters most. Like, it matters. Get caught up in it. Use your money for that. He's saying investing in people, like, it's, it's actually fun to invest in people. It is rewarding in the truest sense of the word. It, it lasts for eternity. And I think he's looking at the religious people of the day, and he's scratching his head, and he's like, why are you not more interested in that? Whatever you're buying, just, it's not that cool. Like, what about these humans that you could invest in? That'd be cool, Right? And they mocked him for it. 
What he's teaching us is this, our money is a tool. That's all it is. It's not a blessing. It is not evidence that we matter. It is not security. It is not significance. It is not success. It is a tool that we have to invest in the only thing that lasts, the kingdom of God. That's what he's teaching us. And so I think what we do with this when it comes to applying it to our lives is, is really simple. It's not easy, but it's really simple. Uh, without shame or guilt, we go to this God who loves us like crazy, loves us like nobody's business, and we ask, how do you want me to use this tool that you gave me for your kingdom? And we ask him that question. And we talk to him about it, and we do whatever he says. And I know this is true. I, like, I can't answer that for you. I know there are a lot of pastors who are like, I'll answer it for you. But I, I literally cannot answer that for you. Okay, like that is only a question that your heavenly father can answer for you. So what, what does he want you to do with this tool? You have to ask him. You have to engage with him. I want to close with a picture of what Jesus is talking about because I think it's happening here a lot. Um, through the years, you all, I mean, I, I talk about this a fair amount. You guys know you've been incredibly generous at this church um, I'm not talking about this stuff because you're not doing it. I think you should, you should feel affirmed by this story um, because I see how you all are doing it. You keep asking this question, hey, how do you want us to use these finances as a tool? And honestly, honestly, I don't know any church that does it like you people. Like, I, honestly. Um, and one day when our money's gone, Jesus says, one day your money will be gone. What he's talking about is because you're dead and you can't spend anything after you die. Um, I think on that day, you'll see some of what your investment has done. Like, I know it hasn't totally come to fruition here yet. Uh, but I think when you see what your investment has done, um, I don't think you're going to weep for the toys you missed out on. I think you're going to weep for the eternal souls that welcome you into eternity. Um, so here's a story about you people. A few years ago, uh, I got to visit a uh, church partner in Ethiopia. Uh, we've been investing in them financially for a few years, uh, just out of our regular budget. And um, it just like, I, I wish you could meet them all. They are an astounding group of believers. It wouldn't be good for us to all go, but they are just really an amazing group. They're doing so much for their community, so gospel-centered, uh, and they have so much to teach us. Um, but on this particular trip, we brought a few medical professionals because they said, hey, that would help our community if we could do a medical clinic. Uh, so we brought two doctors, Steve Whitmarsh, uh, who's a great guy, goes to our church, and then my brother, Nate. Um, they're both really great doctors. Um, so things are winding down for the day, the crowds are leaving, and the pastor comes up to me with an interpreter and he says, hey, uh, could you bring a doctor and follow me? So I'm like, all right. So I grab my brother and we walk uh, down the block a little ways to a little nearby one-room house. Uh, and he introduces us to a mother and her very ill son who just got back from the hospital. And um, it, her son just... He had some very serious medical issues, some profound issues that obviously he went to the hospital and my brother was like, there's nothing that I can do. In fact, he told me afterwards, he said, um, you know, even in the States with like the best medical care, he probably wouldn't live out the year. Um, so this was in the summer. So, I mean, just such a heartbreaking moment. I will say this, side note, um, those of you who are really called to medicine, I don't just mean work in medicine, but really have that calling. Like I see that in Steve Whitmarsh. I see that in my brother regularly. Um, like that is a really special gift from God. And I think you see the gift and the calling 
not in the moments when uh, medical people step in and help somebody. I think you see it in the moments when they step in and they can't, and they still touch, and they still comfort, and they care. And to see that, uh, I get emotional. Like, it was sacred and holy, and even though there was nothing uh, that could be done from a medical perspective, um, there was something holy about it. So, that was a few years ago, um, and sadly, that young man has died. Um, but, like every human who's ever lived, he is eternal. And while he is not here, he is with God, he is still alive. We weren't able to heal, but you know what we were able to do? Take some of our money from our budget and give it to these church leaders and say, hey, just if his mom needs rent assistance because she's caring for him, can't work, if he needs medicine or anything in these last few months of his life, just whatever he needs, could you just provide it for him? And of course they did. Think about the story Jesus told. What if it's true? You know? Like, what if it's true? I know I am the only one who saw that boy's face in this room. But I believe that this is true. That you all made a friend on that day. You made a friend who one day, after you're dead and gone, just might be waiting for you to welcome you into eternity. That's what Jesus is teaching us. That's the sort of shrewd use of our money that Jesus is encouraging. God loves you like crazy. Would you just keep asking him, what do you want me to do with this tool you've given me? God, we come to you thankful because even if we have a lot less than some people, God, you've given us so much more financially than so many people. God, I pray that every day as we think about how we spend our money, God, that you would be with us, that you would shape those decisions, that you would lead us to things that last for eternity. What a privilege to invest in something that lasts that long. Lord, we don't ever want to be short-sighted or just focused on Pulpit Rock Church, God. So continue to expand our mind, lead us to places where we can invest our resources, Lead us to those places that you are working, that you are active, that eternity is crashing down to earth as it is in heaven. And allow the tool of our finances to honor and worship the Jesus that we love. In his name we pray, amen.